0: Well, hello, I'm Neil Taylor, and this is the very first episode of a brand new podcast about the worlds of language and behavioural science and where they overlap. Imaginatively titled Language and Behaviour. We'll be talking to interesting people who know about one or the other or both. And to kick off, we're starting with one of the gurus of the behavioural science world, Steve Martin. And to follow one of Steve's own tips... I'm going to introduce him and so increase his credibility and likability in your eyes or maybe ears. Steve is the CEO of Consultancy Influence at Work, where he works alongside another guru, Robert Cialdini, and with whom he co-authored the international bestseller, Yes, 60 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion. And Steve is guest lecturer at the Judge Business School in Cambridge, the LSE and Harvard Business School. So, Steve, thanks for taking a risk and joining us for episode one. It's good to be with you, Neil. Thank you for the invitation. So, you are the chief exec of Influence at Work. What does that mean you actually spend your days doing? It sounds rather grand, doesn't it?
1: Um, I guess the answer to that question is, I spend my time doing a variety of things that are primarily related to influence and persuasion. I think it's something that we're all interested in being a little better at and we approach it uh, in a specific way at Influence at Work. We believe that there's a science to how people can be influenced and persuaded and we apply that science in workshops. We write about it in our books. Noah and Bob and I, for example, have written a couple, one that you very kindly refer to earlier and we run experiments as well. We are interested in testing some of these approaches Uh, that often do require just a simple change in language to see the effect it has on uh, an individual or a whole community's behavior.
0: So this is a big question, but give us an example of the sort of experiment that you might run. Well, I'll tell you about one that we're conducting at this moment in time uh, on a number of
1: transport systems, in fact, around the world. There's uh, uh, a problem that a lot of transport operators will experience, and this is certain individuals that will get on a bus or a tram or a train, and not buy a ticket. Um, it turns out, Neil, that it's a pretty big problem. Uh, you know, even a a single percentage point in fare to a large transport uh, operator in a major city can cost them millions of dollars, euros, pounds, whatever country it happens to be in. And so, anything that we can do to communicate more effectively uh, to people that might be likely uh, to to evade uh, that will decrease that can can make a big difference and we can show that just thinking about and communicating in a perhaps a slightly counterintuitive way about this particular challenge and issue uh, can lead to some pretty dramatic responses and and uh, reductions actually in, in fair evasion Okay, you got me hooked with counterintuitive. Yeah. In what way? Well, one of the things that we actually find is that um, if public transport authorities, governments, if they communicate the relative frequency of fare evasion, one of the things we actually find is that that does a pretty good job of increasing the number of people that are likely to cheat. Uh, it's, It's almost like the message is saying, well, look at all the people that are doing this undesirable thing. So I feel
0: like I've been given permission to join the crowd.
1: Exactly. There's a kind of license that you actually have. Now, well, if everyone else is doing it, then it's probably okay if I do it occasionally as well. That can be really quite corrosive to a system because, you know, you don't need that many people um, to behave in that way, and suddenly it becomes a a major, major problem. So anything we can do to kind of nudge, if you um, will use that kind of terminology, people in the kind of, the right direction could be a, a good thing,
0: yeah, how do you feel
1: about the word nudge well i I quite like it i you know it's it's well accepted i think in the community of of change agents you know uh you know, whether you're a behavioral scientist whether you're a a designer or a creative agency that are looking to change behavior this 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 idea of nudge it it, it seems relatively benign almost um you know we're not forcing people you know we're not Employing costly incentives or legislative changes, Uh, so you know I like the idea, and you know it's.
0: uh... And it does seem to have entered the vocabulary, the kind of public consciousness to some extent, right? Oh, absolutely, no doubt. So, so back to your transport experiment, I might be asking you to predict the results of of an experiment that's happening right now. But what kind of things do work, or do you think will work? Well,
1: one of the things that we do know works because we've already tested this in Ireland is rather than point to a regrettable number of people that don't pay uh, their fare when they get on, in this case, a light rail system. it's actually just points to the much greater majority of people that actually do. And actually then just thanking people for that. Um, you know, don't have to reduce the fare at all. We don't have to employ costly incentives. Sometimes just a a genuine and human thank you. And that was enough uh, in the experiments, certainly in Ireland, to, to reduce fare evasion. Um, by an average of about 15%, we brought it down and, you know, and, and,
0: and did so consistently over a, a period of close to a year. And do you think there'd be a difference between thank you and thanks a million and tar very much and God love you? Well, I think you've just
1: uh, come up with another experiment. But yeah, my response would be, if no one's tested that yet, then let's get out there and test that. Great. Done. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. That um, it's not just about the words that we use, or the direction that they send someone's attention. There is a a tone of voice. There's a, a you know a, an, an essence to how that message is actually being delivered, which
0: also matters. So how come this is what you spend your life doing? How did you get into this?
1: Yeah. So that is primarily a function of good fortune and luck, um, vastly more amounts of luck than talent, I would suggest. Oh, come, um, come. I, I spent the first half of my career working primarily in the corporate world, going through a variety of jobs in sales, marketing, training, these kind of things. And, um, and then I met Robert Cialdini in uh, 1999. He was, at the time, uh, working on a program to essentially translate the findings from the original Influence book into a set of training programs. You know, I was interested in that um, in terms of I thought it had a huge potential value for sales teams, marketing teams. That was kind of my area of expertise, and so we kind of joined forces. Then in 2007, Bob and I and uh, a grad student of Bob's, uh, Noah, who's now actually a, a, an esteemed professor himself at UCLA, we collaborated on the book Yes!, uh, there seemed to be a an interest in the behavioral sciences, the persuasion sciences, that was uh, you know growing around, around that time, uh, and most of the books were primarily written for that kind of academic audience. Uh, there weren't that many, I guess, texts that spoke to the practitioner, and so what we wanted to do was kind of curate a whole host of persuasion insights into some short, digestible. Easily applicable lessons that, um, you know, if you're a salesman, a manager, a policymaker, a, you know, whoever you may be, if you had an interest in influencing, persuading people, we uh, produced a text that, you know, was readily accessible and easily applicable. And um, it turned out that one of the ideas that we originally published in, in, in the first edition of Yes was picked up by uh, quite a senior uh, person here in the UK government who then thought it might be rather interesting to apply it to things like getting people to pay their taxes on time. And so um I, I recall a few years ago we spent some time rewriting tax letters and just changing the words. Here's the language aspect and uh finding that we could get some um, pretty healthy returns in, in terms of people's desire, motivation to actually fill in their tax returns, pay on time, that sort of thing. And that, along with a few other high-profile pieces of work, I think became the template for the
0: the behavioral science revolution as it, as it exists today. So let's talk about that revolution. I was going to ask you about those people you described as practitioners, because on one level, when you say people who are interested in influencing and persuading, that's most people who are alive, right? I mean, are, are there particular audiences who you feel they really need to be paying attention to this stuff? Well, you're right that everyone, I think,
1: to a, some degree or other is is interested in influencing and persuading others, whether it's, you know, parents getting their kids to do their homework or, you know, go to bed on time, take out the recycling um, uh, to, you know, influencing your friends, your neighbours, your, your better halves. But it does seem to me that there's two areas that are sweet spots for this type of approach. And one clearly is business, you know, gaining customers, clients, you know, wanting to sell more, uh, improve their customer service, these kind of things. And the other is clearly policy, you know, uh, public sector and and government who, you know, we want to pay taxes on time, you know, not litter the streets, turn up for our GP and our hospital appointments. You know, these are large numbers of transactions that um, at an individual level... Probably don't cost that much, but when you've got millions of them occurring each and every year, they suddenly scale up, and they they you know small changes and improvements in efficiencies in those kind of domains can add up to literally hundreds of millions of pounds. and so no surprise that there are policymakers that are interested in that kind of approach as well. And one of the things that I think is incredibly attractive about the application of persuasion science and behavioural science more generally, is that it can be really cost effective. Changing a few words on a letter, uh, you know, the time in which a message is actually delivered, the words on a text, what we put on the front of a train in Ireland or Sydney or France. These are really quite cheap things to do. And the effect that they can have can be sometimes quite modest. But even that modest effect, You know, as I said before, if it's happening multiple hundreds of thousands or even millions of times during the course of a year, add up to significant efficiencies, cost savings or, in the case of business, profit.
0: And the fact that these interventions can seem quite small, does that make people sceptical of the likely effects and the likely benefits?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. From a certain perspective, yes, it yes. Um, I I do recall suggesting that um, you know why don't we tell people in Britain that most of their neighbours have already paid their taxes on time, which was actually true. Um, and and I do remember a few eyebrows being raised when that was first muted, because you know people were thinking, well, hang on a minute, this is this is a big problem. You know, it's hundreds of millions of pounds every year. We need a big solution to a big problem. One of the things that I, I think I'm probably comfortable with concluding now, uh, having done this for a number of years, is that uh, rarely, if ever, have I encountered a big solution to a big problem, uh, a big single solution to a big problem. Invariably, um, to deal with a big problem, uh, it, it will involve multiple small interventions at the right time and an enormous amount of good luck and good fortune at the same time. I, I think it, it's interesting that uh, you do raise eyebrows. There is some scepticism when you suggest some of these small changes. But I think now we are firmly in a position where, you know, we, we're not just citing one example now. We've got multiple examples. And it's not just us. You know, Influence at Work isn't the only organisation in the world that does this. You know, there are behavioural insights, Units that have been set up by government, you know, around the world. I think at the last count, there's best part of 25 of them. Um, you know, there's behavioral insight teams that are being set up in organizations. You know, just last week, uh, a colleague of mine and I published a paper in Harvard uh, talking about how to actually set up a behavioral insight capability in an organization for a lot of companies now.
0: And do you think that's what businesses should be doing? Should they be setting up their own behavioral insights groups?
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you're asking Puts someone that says this is <laughs> well. Actually, no. I, I, if anything, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is the case at the moment is the the marketplace for behavioral sciences is relatively immature. There aren't that many behavioral scientists who are out there doing, uh, you know, I, what I would regard as uh, long term and consistent work. You know, often there'll be academics from universities that get a call from a local company. Um, There's a lot of agencies out there that have read not just our book, but many others, um, who then are well-read and will apply what they've read in a book. Whether that's actually genuinely applied behavioural science or not, I don't know. So there's, I think at this moment in time, um, there aren't enough good behavioural scientists uh to um, fulfill the desire and the need that's actually out there um and so you know when companies want to set up behavioral insight teams i i think the starting point is to is to do so in partnership with a with a, an agency or an academic or a, you know a behavioral scientist and and learn as you go along um so you know it truly is a partnership approach, which actually makes sense if you think about it, because behavioural science itself is largely a partnership approach. It's not just psychologists and economists, there's anthropologists, there's sociologists, there's there's a whole array of different social science expertise that make up behavioural science. So that in itself is a partnership. So it, it just makes sense to me that in the applied world, that should be the same too.
0: And despite all these big brains working on it, I definitely talk to some people about it and they think that I'm talking about something completely blindingly obvious. You know, that lots of people are naturally good at influencing other people and do you actually really need to read a book to learn how to do that or or do a study or talk to you?
1: Is that fair? Well, it's kind of interesting that you say that and I, I think you're right about that. Um, I mean, it's very, very easy to spot the obviousness of an idea after it has been made obvious to you. And I think, again, this speaks to this idea of small changes making big differences. You know, one of the reasons why I think they do make big differences is because they are small. They are often not noticed. They go about their work with a a quiet but powerful effect um, and don't concern themselves with kind of waving their hands in the air going, look at me, look at me. They they just have a a quite almost like under-the-radar quality. Um, and the fact that they just are aligned to a set of fundamental human motivations. You know, they they go with the grain of how we are inclined to behave most of the time. They are, as a result,
0: not noticed until after the event. So is that why, you know, the people in the tax office hadn't thought of saying, well, most people pay their taxes on time in presumably, you know, 100 years of sending out tax demands?
1: Well, possibly. I think that might be one reason. Uh, Another reason is, you know, who you surround yourself with. You know, if if you're in charge of tax policy, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you're probably going to have lawyers that are trained in tax policy, you're probably going to have economists in the room. And, you know, if you have lawyers and economists in the room, you're going to get incentives and legislation as an output. So, you know, um, my colleague Bob Cialdini has uh, recently written a book, "Persuasion," and in the early pages, you know, he, he does point out, and it's absolutely the case, that until probably 10 or 12 years ago, the idea of, a social psychologist or a a psychologist more generally being invited to some policy conference or, you know, government think tank meeting was ludicrous. You know, they they just simply wouldn't have got the call.
0: That's changed now. um, And good that it has. So where are we on the adoption curve, do you think, of this stuff? Is it still on the way up? Uh, I... I believe so. I I really do think that
1: we're at the early stages. One of the things that we've gotten, I think, quite good at is recognising and identifying those factors and features, either in a communication, in a message, or in an environment even, that can temporarily influence or change a behaviour in that moment, in that context. I think we've gotten quite good at that. Uh, uh, There's still lots of work to be done in terms of the persistence and sustainability of that, you know, the fact that I can change a behaviour today or that we can put a strategy together that would influence people to make a certain decision in that moment, whether or not they'll make that same decision next week, next month, next year, in, in a decade's time, that's, you know, more more research is needed as a a proper scientist would say. Um, so, And you're not a proper scientist. Well, I'm not. I mean, I, I'm not a PhD, Uh Do you feel like poor relation? No, I don't. I feel really, really lucky. Uh, I'm in a place where I happen to have an opportunity to work with the most cited behavioral scientists in the world. We have academic insights that um, unless they're brought into the the public domain will often remain in that dusty uh, scientific journal that no one's going to read. Most people won't turn to academic journals most journals that are actually written are cited five or six times you know they're read by the authors and the author's mums um so so are you a translator i would regard myself yeah as um an applier of i'm always interested in the question so how do we apply that in practice Um, because invariably that's where these field experiments that we actually run begin. People don't come to us asking for a theory. They come to us with a problem. They say, right, you know, we have this challenge. You know, can we persuade more people to do X or Y or Z? Uh, And how would we do that? And then we go to the literature and say, right, well, what do we know about uh, might work in this context? Um, And then how do we test it, you know? How do we arrange for certain people to be exposed to that particular message or that intervention while others aren't? So we can come to some reasonably robust conclusion that when we do this, it makes this difference. So that is the real beauty. I think, you know, the coming together of the academic um, community and then, I guess, folks like me who understand enough of that science to be able to apply it in
0: practice and measure it. I think that's where the real gold is now. So... Let's talk about language. I'm a writer by trade, so words are what I care about. Um, How much is language a part of what you do?
1: I think it's a significant part
0: of what we do. You know, if we put a message
1: on the side of a train or on a letter or on a poster in a GP waiting room or on a website, it may be an image, but invariably it will be an image and it will be words. And often those words matter a lot. Um, you know, the amendment, the adjustment, the alteration of of one or two words, or well, the order in which they're presented, we find often have some surprising um,
0: impacts and uh, uh, outcome. Is there an example of that? that
1: well, yeah, work? there's there's one. So one of the things that we've been experimenting with. And actually, this is based on previous research. I think this was first published three or four years ago, but never tested in this um, transport setting. If we talk about cheats and cheaters and cheating, does it matter what version of that word cheat we actually use? And it turns out it does. You know, um, you know, We can say, you know, please don't be a cheat. Most people are honest. Or please don't be a cheater. Most people are honest. And we find that the word cheater is more effective by a couple of percentage points uh, bringing down fair evasion than the word cheat so there's an example of pretty much the same word but in a, in a different form uh, having that quite significant impact
0: and would you investigate why that is
1: um, probably not actually um, uh, that I think is in the domain of the linguists and and and, and the academics getting into the mechanics of those linguistic nuances. Um, There are others that are vastly more qualified and experienced uh, than than I. And I suspect it's a career for some of us. I suspect, Neil, that you would be
0: one of those. Um, So you talked about some of the surprising results around language. What was the last finding that you went, wow, I really was not expecting that? Well, here's,
1: here's an idea that it didn't surprise me in terms of the effect it had, what surprised me was the scale of the effect. Uh, it's another public sector um, experiment uh, that was done in uh, doctor's surgeries. You know, People will often phone up or make an appointment when they're in a surgery. But the fact is that a significant number you know, fail to show up and, and it's pretty costly to the, the national health system. So close to seven to eight hundred million pounds a year is lost. And so we ran a little experiment in some GP surgeries. And we found that you can do some pretty straightforward things that bring down uh, no-shows, you know, make the appointment-making process easier, uh, you know, send people texts, these kind of things, be nice to people on the phone, oh, have some... Who'd have thought it? I know, have, you know, a level of flexibility when it comes to availability of appointments, all these different kind of things. Um, seem to have an effect. Um, there's another one that... I sensed would have an effect, but not to the extent that it actually did, which it concerns the little, you know, Neil, when you've maybe made an appointment yourself at a a doctor's, a dentist, a physiotherapist, you may be given one of those little cards Uh where they write down, the receptionist will write down the time and day of the appointment and pass it over to you. And um, it struck me that it was rather odd that it was always the receptionist that wrote down the time and day of the appointment. On the card, and from a certain perspective, it's not odd. You think, oh, it's good customer service. It's you know, it's accurate. You know, there's 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 no uh, misunderstanding that's going to occur.
0: That's why they give it to the and receptionist it's, 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 and not the doctor, it, right?
1: Probably, yeah. One of the things that we do know um, from decades of, of persuasion science is that the extent to which people share an ownership of an endeavor, you know, increases their commitment toward it. If you're largely passive to an activity, you know, you can step away from it. But if you're actively involved in that process, then there's more of a, an ownership you actually have. And so we wondered whether simply asking the receptionist to pass the blank card to the individual uh, with a pen or a pencil and say, hey, look, your appointment's next Tuesday at 2.30. Here's a card to, to write that down. We suspected for those reasons of active involvement rather than being passive, it would have... A bit of an effect, maybe a couple of percentage points. Um, it, close to twenty percent impact in reducing um, missed appointments. So, so that surprised me in terms of the extent. The other thing that surprised me—I don't know if I, yeah, I probably can say this. Yeah, go on. Um, is that um, after the experiments ended and we collected up all the data and we showed the effects they actually had, um, I was contacted about uh, a month later. Someone had heard about these studies. They uh, Radio Four did a, a little section after we published the data, and um, someone called me and said, "Are these still having an effect? These, you know, or did they just have a short-term impact?" And so I contacted one of the, the GP surgeries, and and I, I said, "You know, how's it going? Are they still? Are these ideas still working?" And they turned around and said, "Well, we don't know. We've we've stopped doing them." So excuse me, you've stopped. And I said. Couple of ideas here that are bringing down your no-show rates by twenty percent and you've stopped. And they said, Well, yeah, because the experiment stopped. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it was always like, well, now you've finished testing them. I and rather and this is my fault, I think. You know, I, I I wrongly assumed that, you know, once we've proven something to work, that and it didn't cost any money to actually continue doing them, that they would continue doing them, but it wasn't the case at
0: all. Wow. So now we need to influence them to keep doing the things. That influence other people in the right way.
1: <laughs> it's exactly right. So uh, I think <laughs> there's two levels of persuasion here, isn't there? One is, you know, uh, what are the persuasive insights that actually change behaviours? And then once we found those out, how do we then persuade people to use these persuasion insights? It was, uh, it was a kind of, it was, it was a sobering lesson for me that, um, you know, just because you've learned how to perhaps influence a particular behaviour in a particular context. Um, there's no guarantee that that's actually going to continue. So hence, I think there's still a long way to go in terms of uh, not just the sustainability of a particular effect, but actually getting people to sustain the effects over time as well.
0: I'm also interested that you said this idea of getting people to write down their own appointment and to commit themselves. You said you had a sense that that would work. How much is the the bit where you're leaping from, I know the academic literature says this, these effects exist to the point at which you're going, well, let's try these four things. That feels like quite a creative process. Uh, There's perhaps a case to
1: be made that there's a certain level of, uh, of creativeness to it. Um, I would, I would rather see it as a set of rules. Um, you know, rules of thumb or guides to good decision-making. You know, if you do want to remember something, recall it at a future date. You know, writing it down is probably a good idea in the same way as, you know, if everyone else is behaving in a certain way, it's probably a good way for us to behave as well. It's certainly uh, likely to be uh, a more correct or accurate way of, of, of behaving.
0: Which some of those things, presumably, people like... Marketeers have been doing for years and years and years, but according to their hunches, I suppose, rather than a methodical approach to it, yeah, I think
1: you're right about that there's um well, the original influence book, which was published in nineteen eighty four was essentially a study of those most effective practices um but they were primarily techniques that um you know marketeers campaigners, political communicators you know would would use and they would happen upon a particular strategy or technique that seemed to work for the most of the time you know bob's genius was to um not to look for a particular tactic but an underlying mechanism or principle that seemed to be universal to all those contexts and that's where these you know six universal principles
0: of influence emerged so if you were really successful forgive me that sounds terrible if you were even more I'm successful <laughs> <laughs> um and every big business started thinking about this properly what would be different in five years time what would the world look like that was really focusing on these techniques well it's a brilliant question and i'm not going to fall into the trap of trying to answer it <laughs> which
1: uh <laughs> a lot of people do we are Incredibly, I think poor at predicting the future. Uh, we like to think that we're pretty good at it, but um, you know, I—in fact, there's been lots of research that shows that you know when you ask people to predict how they'll behave and how they'll be influenced in the future, they—they they come up with stories, they come up with good rationale for what they would do and how they'd react in the future, and 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 very often it bears no resemblance to what actually happens in practice.
0: Okay, finally, a few quick-fire questions. We'll see how brief you can get your answers. Um, So what's the best thing about your job, Steve? The variety. And the worst thing? Uh, Not having enough hours in the day. Is there a book, apart from your own, obviously that we should all read, or a TED Talk we should all go and watch, or something like that? Well, I think uh, it would be
1: unfair to name just one, so I, I need to name a few. I mean, basically, a- anything that Danny Kahneman has written, so Thinking Fast and Slow, he's also done a TED Talk, um, you know, Dick Thaler, Cass Sunstein, and, and Nudge, uh, Danny Areli- Dan Dan. <laughs> Dan Ariely uh, uh, has written a, a number of good books. He also has a really neat little column in the Wall Street Journal uh, each week where he answers, you know, questions from the public about the application of behavioural science to their personal lives. That's always a, a good read. Uh, Tally Sharrow's just written a, a great
0: new book. That's the start of a bookshelf. Who's your hero? Uh, Robert Cialdini. And they say never meet your heroes. What about working with your heroes?
1: It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, um, life changing for me. Um, you know, I, I get to, yeah, you know, I, I get to work with and and write and publish with uh, the most cited social psychologist researcher in the field of persuasion in the
0: world. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. What are you most proud of in your career? Um,
1: I'm. I'm really liking the work that we're doing in transport at the moment. And the reason that I'm proud of that work is that it's not one particular experiment or problem we've tried to solve. Uh, The organisation that we're working with is actually applying these persuasion and and behavioural science insights to a variety of different endeavours across their business. And they're global as well. And so, you know... um, it means that the work is is not just targeted at a, a particular single issue. Um, it's multiple issues and across the world as well. So we can look at different cultural variances, the different ways in which, you know, do the French have different attitudes to fair evasion and the Irish and the Australians? And yes, they do. Do and they fit uh, the stereotypes? Uh, invite me back when we've published and I'll tell you. <laughs> and what's been your biggest mistake? Oh, geez loads of them there's 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 just been loads Um, I think the beauty of this kind of approach is that we're always going to make mistakes and um, I think one of the things the mistake I made was not embracing the mistakes Um, you know in the early days when that not that many people were thinking about persuasion science or thinking about influence and persuasion as a science invariably you'd want to focus people's attentions on the upsides. And, you know, if things didn't quite work, you'd kind of bury them, push them under the carpet a little bit and just focus on the things that are actually working for, you know, understandable reasons. You want to kind of promote the cause. Um, But it turns out there's just huge learnings in stuff that doesn't work. And, um, you know, recently, certainly over the last four or five years, you know, you hear about the experiments and they end up in the newspapers and things about all the cool stuff that's being done. Um, But there's a lot of cool stuff that actually doesn't work. Anything else you want to talk about?
0: I'm good. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Neil. If you enjoyed this first episode, leave us a nice review wherever you listen and maybe we'll get to do another one. Until then, I'm Neil Taylor, co-founder of Schwa, and that was Language and Behaviour. Talk to you soon.